You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Verses, uh, well, we're going to look at the whole psalm. I like to look at a psalm when we uh, do communion, and since the last time we looked at Psalm 43, then this is Psalm 44. I think the words, some of the words will come up on the screen anyway. Uh, we'll read as we go through it. Um, but I want to ask, first of all, just a, a, a small question. What are you expecting when you come to church? Why, why are you here? What are you looking for? I think a lot of us come and we look for things for ourselves, quite rightly. We're discouraged, we look for encouragement. We're frustrated, we look for answers. We have doubts and fears, we look for reassurance. We are confused, we look for light, and so on. Sometimes, though, we forget that we come as a collective body of people. When I came down to church this morning, I walked down, and I listened to a great sermon by Matt Chandler before I came, and then I walked down, and the distance between my house and and here is basically a podcast, a decent podcast walk. And I listened to another one by Ravi Zacharias, and it was brilliant. And I got here, and I thought, well, I didn't think this, but I could have thought, right, that's it. I'll just turn around and go home. I've been fed. I've heard God's Word. I, what do I need to stay for? Just to teach God's Word? But no, there's something different about us being together. And this psalm is very, very interesting. Um, when we pray, by the way, sometimes people will, will pray in public when we're praying together, Lord, I I pray for this, I pray for that, I pray. And that's understandable, except when you're leading in prayer, it's we, it's all of us. It's not just I. And when we're looking at this, it's helpful to think this is not just I, but it's, it's, it's all of us as a community of God's people. The other Psalms, Psalm, two Psalms before this, Psalm 42 and 43, are very individual. But Psalm 44 isn't. It's a kind of antiphonal Psalm, the king, it involves the king and the people praying together. And I think that that's what we, we really need to think about. Sometimes we are like a football player who gets a bit huffy and a bit of a prima donna and says, I don't, I don't want to be part of this team. We think about what helps us, what we want. We need, I believe, to reverse our priorities and our thinking, and to think about in terms of when we take communion, it's communion together. When we have fellowship, it's fellowship together. Our giving and our time, our our home and our gifts and our sharing, it has been together. Now, this psalm is uh, a little bit discouraging in some ways. It's a psalm that's often associated, though it wasn't written by him, but it's associated uh, with the other book that we're looking at in the mornings, the book of Job, because it is a a song of lament after a time of defeat. And it's the problem of what we call covenant theology. In this church, we we hold to something called covenant theology, that God keeps a covenant. God makes a promise. God promises to be with His people. But the problem of covenant theology is, what what happens if you don't experience that? What happens if God says He'll be with you and you don't feel He's with you? What happens if God promises to be your God and He feels so distant from you? What happens when you're singing about 
praising Him, and you feel so cold and so far away. So, this is a song which is looking at that as the whole of God's people are coming together and saying, Lord, we've been beaten. Lord, we are defeated. Why don't you awake? So, let's look at it and let's consider it in that light. Verses uh, 1 to 8, first of all. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. I'll stop there, actually, because that first section, that first verse, as we go through this, I'm just wanting to apply things to us collectively in the context of a culture in which, in my view, the church has largely been defeated and um, when Christians have a triumphalist theology, I think it's wrong. I think the church in Scotland, uh, throughout the United Kingdom, but let's just leave it at Scotland at the moment, is in, a, is in a mess. I think the church in this city is largely in a mess. And I think it's very easy for us here in St. Peter's. Um, sometimes it's great, you know, relatively full, much fuller than we were. Lots of good things going on. People being brought to the Lord. Wonderful things to be so thankful for, and yet so, so, so fragile. And in that context, it's easy to be defeated. And here is what the psalmist tells that we are to do. Firstly, we've to pass on the faith. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. There's a wrong kind of looking back Oh, remember the good old days. Usually said by people who've forgotten, but they're just making it up. Remember the good old days. Remember when, remember when, remember when. But in our context and culture, one of the problems is we think that we are the most important age in history. We think that everything's been leading up to where we are, and we don't learn from the past. One of the really vital things that's going on through there in the Sunday school is that the children are being taught the past. They're being taught about the gospel, what Jesus did, what happened. They're being taught what the Bible says. And we need to do that. We need to instruct one another and teach one another because it's not just our experience now, it's the experience of all God's people, how God worked in the past and how God works now. And we need to remind one another and tell one another Secondly, Christ's gospel will drive out paganism. We do not like the language of verse 2. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. When we sang that, you should have, if you are a normal human being, felt a little bit uncomfortable. If you were thinking, yes, this is great, like you're some kind of football tribe. We stamped on them. We kicked their heads in. We had a great time. Wrong church for you. There's... Others I can recommend, but uh, not this one. That's not how we look at things. So if you feel a little bit uncomfortable, so you should, because it is uncomfortable. And in some of the things, some of you who know your Old Testament will say, yeah, but there were things that happened in the Old Testament that were so appalling. But the trouble is, 
The way that you're looking at it is from a 21st century perspective, and you're looking back, the idea of the noble savage or whatever, and God's people came in and drove out all these innocent people. They weren't innocent people. They were cultures that, for example, sacrificed their own children. They were cultures in which women weren't just discriminated against. It was legitimate to rape and to, to torture They were cultures which were profoundly and grotesquely evil. Even though within those cultures in God's common grace there would still be good things and there would still be things that were redeemable, they were pagan, godless cultures. And I want to say this, that uh, in our culture people say, and a lot of Christians buy into this, oh, it's really good, we live in a pluralistic culture, we'll have all these different views, and Christianity is just part of that, we don't want to be too intolerant. I want to tell you this, as we supposedly progress, that is not progress, that will be regress, and we will not go forward into a bright nirvana, a glorious future of liberty and freedom and justice and tolerance and love for all, as our politicians tell us, we will revert to a kind of Greco-Roman paganism in which All the fruits of Christianity, which people right now are in joy, will be gone. We have to remember that, for example, the most cultured, sophisticated, literate, scientific nation in the world ended up being the nation that killed six million Jews. It wasn't because the Germans were particularly bad people. It wasn't just because of Hitler. It was because as a culture and as a nation, as a whole, they turned away from the Word of God. That's not saying it always leads into Nazism and fascism, but it leads down a similar road and down a similar path. And sometimes those of us who are Christians can despair at what we see going on in our culture. We are turning back to paganism. Well, here, you look at this psalm and it tells you this, God you drove out paganism before from this land. In this land of Scotland, you drove it out. You can do it again. You will do it again. That is really important for you to grasp. Do not get the kind of Christian who thinks, well, things always get worse. Yes, they do, but they always get worse, but the gospel makes them better as well. We believe in the good news. The good news is not just we're all doomed. The good news is we're all doomed, but God can save us. And you've always got to put that second bit in there. The third thing is, salvation is from the Lord. It was not by their sword that they won the land. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, verse 16, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We are so tempted to rely on our own strength, our own abilities, our own money, our own wealth, our own intellect, our own might. And God says, no, you're not going to be delivered by that. You're not going to be delivered as a church because there are lots of people. You're not going to be delivered because you have money. You're not going to be delivered because you're clever. You're not going to be delivered because you know how to use the internet. You're not going to be delivered because you can do this, this, and this. The only way you can be delivered is by my arm, my strength, and my power. And I have to say this to all of us 
but to any of you individually who right now are really, really struggling and saying, how can I be saved? How can I be saved in these circumstances? If you are a Christian, you rely absolutely and totally on the Lord to the extent that you can say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. God did it in the past. God will do it again. Then goes on to say this, you are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I don't trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. For you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long and we will praise your name forever. We boast. Now, I don't want to say much about that. Um, if you're not doing anything else this evening, come along at six o'clock and you will find all about Christian boasting, when it is right to boast. And it is not, we are the people. That's not that kind of boasting. But there is a, a right kind of Christian boasting. And here, the psalmist is, is, is doing that. He's saying, we can't boast about our strength and our might, but we boast about you because of what you have done. And because of that, we have a greater personal commitment and faith in you. Now, I want to say something about the free church at the moment, the denomination to which we belong. I'm not into denominationalism, and I've said many, many things that are critical, and I will continue to say many things that are critical of the free church. But I, I do want to say this. I want to pay tribute to the denomination as a whole that with all its faults and hypocrisies that the free church has tried to stick close to the Scriptures. We believe that Christ is the head of the church, that Christ's Word, the Bible, is infallible, that the state does not have the right to tell the church what to do, that the church does have the right and should tell the state when it's going against God's Word. So, for example, this week, um, the Scottish government, it may seem a small thing to some of you, but it was an important thing uh, to, to many others, the Scottish government decided that the uh, crofters and fishermen on Rassi would have to give up the rights to fish and so on to a private company that, who bid a, a higher amount. And the church has written to the Scottish government and said, that's wrong. It's just wrong. These are the people who work the land. These are the people who live on the land. These are the people who've managed it well. And for the sake of 2,000 pounds, you're taking it away from them and giving it to somebody else. So we believe that. We've we, we believe that the church should speak up against injustice. That's a small thing. And we believe that we are to bring the good news to all people. Now, let me say this. That sounds great in a Christian context, but in the context of our culture, it means that you experience a tremendous amount of abuse. We get mocked and abused, sometimes even from other Christians. Well, I've, I've, I was amazed today. I got sent this and I, w I wanted to share it with you because it's so amazing. This is from the Guardian stroke. The Obser it's actually from the Observer today. It's a piece that is written. You, you actually have to read the whole piece. You can, uh, if you're on Facebook and you're my friend, go along and you'll see. That I'll put a link to it on there. But it, it, it talks. This is a guy saying, why Scotland needs the free church. I thought, what a ridiculous title. He's, he's going to, this is going to be mockery. And it wasn't. This is one thing he said. We all know, though, the real reason why we like to throw rotten fruit, that's at the free church, and to ridicule this most thrown and implacable of institutions and shout leper at it and make it wear bells and rags. 
for its very existence is an eternal rebuke to the world of excess greed and unfettered consumerism and to the adherents of the other Christian faiths who each day feel compelled to make little compromises with an unbelieving world just to have a quiet and easy life. Presumably, it has relatively few adherents because it brooks no such dirty compromises in its own membership. It takes the unremitting abuse and hatred from those wretched few who hold sway in our political life and who preach equality, inclusion, and freedom of worship unless you subscribe to biblical Christianity. Now, you need to read the rest of the article, but I nearly choked on my cornflakes or whatever I was eating at the time. How is this being written in a secular newspaper? It's a strange thing. God, God does the most amazing and strange things in different ways. And that really is what the psalmist is saying. It's not when I put that up there, I, the last thing I want is for people to go, oh yeah, we are the free church, isn't that great? No, it's not. We boast about God. We stick with God and we stick with His Word and He will eventually vindicate us. Men will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our boast must always be in God, not in ourselves. Men may mock, men may praise, but the Word of the Lord continues forever. Then verse 9 through to verse 14. But now you have rejected and humbled us. We boasted in you, but what have you done? This is what he's saying. You have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You make us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You've made us reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this happened to us, though we'd not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals and covered us over with deep darkness." If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since He knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For God's people, there is defeat, embarrassment, and humiliation. The people shake their head at us. Verse 14, he says, that's what they do. Let me say this to you as a Christian. If they hated Christ, why will they love you? Does that make any sense? If they hated Christ and you follow Christ, why do you think they're going to hate Him and yet love you? It is not easy to follow Jesus Christ. And that seems even doubly so when God's people say, we have been loyal in heart, but only disaster has followed. Verse 18, our hearts have not turned back. Verse 20, we've not forgotten the true and then followed the false. Verse 21, we're not faking. And yet it all seems to go wrong. It's interesting, isn't it? Would not God have discovered it since He knows the secrets of the heart? How many of us are faking it? How many of us are saying, yes, Lord, hallelujah? How many of us are being somber and very reverent and holy? And it's all a fake. 
It's not for real. You need to remember God sees and God knows. Your family may not see and know. Your friends may not see and know. Your church may not see and know. Your Christian brothers and sisters may be fooled by it. But God is not fooled. And the psalmist knows that. And he says, Lord, we, we wanted to follow you. We were committed to you. And yet, it seems as though we're the ones who are getting hammered. In the past, you drove out paganism. You drove out the false teaching. Now, we're the ones who are being driven out. It just doesn't seem fair. It seems so unfair. Worth and reward do not keep in step. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? It's not right. I can understand why the drug dealer gets cancer. I cannot understand why my mother gets cancer. I can understand why the person who's lazy and feckless and useless loses their job. I cannot understand why somebody who's a hardworking, committed believer loses their job. I just don't get it. And so the believer says, we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. It just seems so unfair. Now, if you know your Bibles, you will know that the sheep to be slaughtered comes, we have it in Isaiah 53. We also have it in Romans in chapter 8, which I will read in a moment. But God's people, it's, it's, it's like we're being lined up for the slaughter. We're being mocked and humiliated and abused and attacked. And the enemy, and in that sense, Satan, there's an, sometimes an overwhelming spiritual assault upon us. And sometimes you just put your hand, your head in your hands, and you say, Lord, enough, enough. I can't take any more. And so what does he do? He cries out to God. Look at these amazing words. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. Rouse yourself. Wake up. There's an incredible boldness in this prayer. Who of us would dare say to God, God, wake up? It's the kind of thing you say to a child. Come on, wake up. It's the kind of thing you say to, you know, your partner, husband or wife. Come on, get up. Let's get going. It's the kind of thing you might even say when you're sitting in church and the person beside you is beginning to nod and you wake up. What are we doing? Are we, are we giving God a nudge? Are we saying, come on, God. How, how, I mean, it's an incredibly bold prayer, especially since Psalm 121 verse 4 says this, God does not sleep. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Think of Jesus asleep in the boat. Lord, Lord, don't you care that we're about to be drowned? Or think of the prophets of Baal and Elijah when Elijah has the, the 400 prophets and, and he says, go on, um, call upon your God to send down the fire and they dance around and so on and they start, they get pretty frantic and I, I mean, I love this because it's a biblically endorsed sarcasm. It's just fantastic. You go and read what Elijah actually says to them. He says, well, maybe your God's on holiday. Maybe he's gone to the toilet. Maybe he's just needing a wee rest break. Maybe he's asleep. Come on, louder, shout louder. And then they start cutting themselves. And Elijah's mocking them. So how, how can it be possible that the psalmist feels that he can come to God and say, wake up? Is God on holiday? Is God absent? 
Because sometimes you feel that. Sometimes you feel that God is miles and miles and miles away, nowhere near your life, nowhere near your circumstances. How can He be? How can He let this happen to you? How can this be going on? There are times when you've really, really felt the presence of, of the living God, but now you feel as though God is asleep. Rise up and redeem us. Don't reject us. Well, actually, these verses are an extraordinary statement of faith because the psalmist is being honest. He's saying what he's seeing. He's seeing God's people being thrust out. He's seeing God's people losing. He's seeing the enemy apparently winning, and his heart is overwhelmed. And he cries out to a God who he believes hears, Lord, please wake up and help me. He knows that God is not asleep. That's not the issue. The issue is in his life and in his circumstances and in the circumstances collectively of the people of Israel, he's crying out to God to wake up. And surely we must do that for Scotland. Lord, where are you? What is going on in Scotland? This doesn't make sense. The church is in such a mess. Things are so confusing. Faithful people get abused. Unfaithful people seem to prosper. How is this right? And you pray the most dangerous prayer you will ever pray, awake, O Lord, and deal with us. Because that is just incredible. When that starts happening, you pray this prayer. I challenge you, you pray this prayer. It's not like you're saying, awake, O Lord, and smite them. It's awake, O Lord, and deal with us. And God will start dealing with those hypocrisies and those hidden sins and those things that you kind of know are sin, but you buried them deep and you're focusing on other people's sins and God awakes and comes, first of all, to His people. But look at what is said there. Rise up and help us. Redeem us. Why? Redeem us because we're great. Redeem us because we deserve it. It's redeem us because of your unfailing love. That's how we know this will happen. If you go back uh, in this to verse 3, it says... It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. There's a picture here of somebody, I I don't know if if you're in a a family or a group of friends, if it's ever this dramatic. Uh, Sometimes you'll see a very small child might do this. We, in, in Scottish culture, we don't do this very much. Maybe in other cultures they do but we don't like somebody. You don't like, you're just really in a bad mood. You just, you fold your arms and you just turn around and you turn your back to them. And that's it. You know, I'm not talking to you. And there's this image here that the psalmist is saying, God, have you turned your back on us? And the psalmist says, no, wait a minute. It was the light of your face that you loved us. And you will rise up and redeem us because of your unfailing love. How do we know God's love is unfailing? How do you know God's love is unfailing when you lose your job, when someone you love is sick, when you're faced with depression or oppression, when a a lifelong friendship seems to fall apart, when a marriage is in difficulty, when the church seems to be overwhelmed, when evil seems to be predominant in the land, how can you possibly know that God will redeem and God's unfailing love? The answer is this, Isaiah 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We take communion. What do we remember? We remember he was slaughtered. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. 
We're, we're, we're being attacked. We're being oppressed. Ah, but he was slaughtered. We are like that, but he was slaughtered. We will be saved. He was slaughtered. And that's why Romans 8 quotes this. Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I love that. That whole idea of saying, awake, O Lord, and you say, well, wait a minute, Jesus is. He's there. He's right now, Jesus is praying. It's great we can pray. It's great that we pray for missions as Sheena did, and Chris will pray for us as a congregation. And that's wonderful that we can do that. But we know that that works because Jesus is there praying with us, praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's where you take this verse and, and put it in context in the middle of the most wonderful passage in Scripture of joy and hope. There is this, we are being slaughtered. And yet, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes I sit and talk with Christians who are really discouraged and really depressed and really feeling guilty and full of their own sin and everything else. And this is the challenge I would always say to someone like that. You tell me one thing that you have done, one thing that you are guilty of, one thing that you feel that the cross of Jesus is not sufficient for. Tell me. Nobody, nobody has ever met that challenge. Let me put it slightly different in the context of this psalm in Romans 8. You tell me one thing in your life just now, one thing that is happening, one thing that is terrible, one thing that is overwhelming, one thing that is causing you to fear that will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not a thing. Not a thing. And so you can say, Lord, please wake. Please act. Please redeem. And I believe you will because of your unfailing love shown in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for just, what is it, extraordinary good news that becomes, is seen as even better in the light of sometimes the most horrible of contexts that we may find ourselves in. Can anything separate us from your love? Not at all. Lord, we ask that you would wake in our lands, that you would cause out your spirit to be poured upon this city and that even as a, a journalist in a newspaper can write something which we would love to be able to write in that paper, but don't have the freedom to do so, but you can cause it. So you can cause politicians' hearts to turn. 
You can cause teachers' hearts to turn. You can cause journalists' hearts to turn. You can turn a nation upside down. You did this in the past in this land. Oh, Lord, do not let us revert to paganism. Turn us again. And we pray for your church. Lord, hard-hearted as we are, foolish as we are, we ask that you would have mercy upon us and that you would turn us again. Pray for this congregation of your people. Oh, Lord, our God, sometimes it seems as though people are constantly being sick. There's constantly the threat of death. There's constantly dangers of our own sinful personalities eating one another up. There's so many things that would, would, would cause us to fall apart. And we plead with you for you to wake and to waken us for your Spirit to work in our midst. Uh, we pray, O oh Lord, especially for any here this morning who are struggling with sin and with self and with circumstances, that they, we would be able to lift our eyes beyond ourselves and to see Jesus and the beauty of Jesus and the love of Jesus and to know that you are the God who watches over us, that you do not slumber nor sleep, but you protect and you keep your people. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.